Welcome to the Harvest Bible Chapel of Winston-Salem podcast. We believe in proclaiming the authority of God's word without apology, lifting high the name of Jesus through worship, believing firmly in the power of prayer, and sharing the good news of Jesus with boldness. For more information, visit harvestws.org. Here's this week's message. Good morning. That was so lame. Come on. Good morning. Good morning. Hey, um, for those that are visiting with us this morning, uh, you may have heard that we have a new senior pastor, and um, and he's fantastic. Um, and some of you may have been looking forward to this series that we're in, the book of Nehemiah, the God that builds. And I just want to tell you, I'm not him. And that's not what we're doing this morning. So um, don't let this be the time that you judge whether or not this is your church. Uh, my name is DJ McKee. I'm one of the elders here. And it is my extreme privilege to be able to open God's word with you this morning. Um, before we do that, we've already had the text read for us this morning. I like to pray. And uh, as I pray, I'm going to be praying for God um, for clarity and for uh, just me to be able to communicate clearly what God has laid on my heart. And, and while I'm praying that, would you be praying that God would be preparing your heart and opening your mind for what he might have for you to hear this morning? Would you do that? Let's pray together, okay? Lord God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for uh, the time of worship that we've had this morning already. Lord, I thank you for this um, opportunity to get into this passage of scripture that may be very familiar to several of us here. But Lord, I pray that you would just be um, renewing our hearts and our minds, Lord, and that this uh, passage of scripture would come alive and that you would speak to us clearly through it this morning, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, I think I was born an entrepreneur. Um, I was um, sort of for the, as long as I can remember, I was always sort of starting businesses and doing things that had to do with, um, you know, really anything business, but more, um, I want to say disorganized business rather than organized business. That might sound funny to you, but um, God just wired me that way. I don't know why. Um, sometimes I hate that and other times I really like it, but um but God just sort of wired me as an entrepreneur. And when I barely made it through college, and I, I got out of college and I got a straight job, um, I, I pretty quickly, I realized there were a lot of things that I could learn in that. And I learned a lot on how to relate to people. And I learned some communication skills. And I learned some organizational skills and some administrative skills. And I learned really quickly that it was not for me. But having just been married, and for those of you who might know my father-in-law, there was no way that he was going to allow some deadbeat hustler to try to take care of his daughter, right? So I held down this straight job for as long as I possibly could. And about several years into Jen and I's marriage, we decided to start our own business. We started this small business, and anybody that's ever done that can sort of relate to this idea of being this feeling of being on a roller coaster, right? Just these tremendous 
peaks and valleys and ups and downs. And if you would have made a graph of what our income statement looked like, it would have been exactly that, just a roller coaster ride. It's like going to Carowinds every month, right? You just don't know. It's exciting. It's terrifying. You know, it's just, that's what it was. But it was in one of these tremendous valleys, one of these really low, low, low times, serious, serious enough that we thought we were going to have to close that business, that God really began working on my heart through this 21st chapter of the book of John. It was Christmas of 1999, and um, we were over at my in-law's house for a meal, and I got to tell you, I was in a really bad place. I really didn't want to be there. I didn't want to be around any people. I didn't feel like small talk, and I for sure didn't feel like talking about anything serious. I was pretty easily agitated. I had this feeling of just the weight of the world on my shoulders. See, I, I my current livelihood was at stake, and, and, and not only mine, but all the people that this business employed. And I was just trying to be cordial, and I was trying to make it through the night. My mother-in-law mentioned a phone call that she had gotten from uh, a dear friend of hers, who's still a dear friend to this day, and her name is Vicki. And Vicki had recently moved out of the area, and um, to be honest, I didn't really know her all that well. I I knew just a few things about her. I knew that, that she was really solid in her faith. I knew that... She loved Jesus, and I knew that she loved to pray. And, and in the course of the conversation, my mother-in-law says to me this, well, you know, I talked to Vicki this week, and she just said that she prays for you too every morning when she takes her morning walk. And there it was. We were about ready to talk about my failure. We were about ready to talk about this failing business and my life, what seemed like it was unraveling before my eyes. And then she said this. She said, um, yeah, you know, when she prays, she feels like the Lord's just putting it on her heart to tell me, to tell you, to cast your nets on the other side. I don't know about you, but I sort of get leery when, when somebody says, hey, God told me this. Or better yet, God told me to tell you something. It's in those moments that my guard just sort of goes up. You know, how can you not follow through on a word directly from the Lord? It's like the holy trump card, right? Now to clarify, I'm not saying that God doesn't speak to people. I'm not saying that God doesn't speak through people. I'm not saying that the Holy Spirit doesn't illuminate some truth for somebody. I'm not saying that doesn't happen. I'm not saying that God doesn't show kindness to his children by doing that. Turn to your neighbor and say, he's not saying that. I'm not saying that. What sets my radar off is that sometimes, oftentimes, at least in my experience, the statement that follows is not always, but often, directly opposed to something that Scripture has to say on the matter. Have you had that experience? Someone tells you that they have something that God revealed to them, and it just seems different than what the Bible has to say on it. Well, here at Harvest, we we believe that, that not only is Scripture breathed out by God, 
We say it's inspired by God. But we also would use the word infallible. It's, it's, it's without error. It's, it's trustworthy. It's perfect. We don't believe that, that the Bible is just inspired or accurate, but we would, we would also say that it's complete. And so when we read the Bible, it's not just reading a record of some things that God has done or said in the past. You see, God speaks to us actively in the here and the now through the words of this amazing book. The writer of Hebrews makes this point very clear when he quotes Old Testament passages and he presents them not as something that God did or said in the past, but as something that God is currently saying to his people. He says it this way, the word of God is living and active. It's exposing our shallow beliefs, our hidden motives at times. This word is personal. And you and I can hear the voice of God speaking to us unmistakably, authoritatively, and personally when we read, when we hear, and when we study and meditate on the scriptures. I appreciate the way that John Piper describes his experience in hearing God speak through scriptures. He says it this way, God talks to me. In no other way, but don't get this wrong, he talks to me very personally. I open my Bible in the morning to meet my friend, my savior, my creator, my sustainer. I meet him and he talks to me. I'm not denying providence, not denying circumstance, not denying people. I'm just saying that the only authoritative communion I have with God with any certainty comes through the words of this book. And if we want to go back a little further, Jonathan Edwards says this, I know by experience that impressions being made with great power and upon the minds of true saints, yea, eminent saints, and presently after, yea, in the midst of extraordinary exercises of grace and sweet communion with God, and attended with texts of scripture strongly impressed on the mind, are no sure signs of there being revelations from heaven. For I have known such impressions to fail and prove vain. You might ask, what difference does that really make? Does it really make a difference when we expect God to speak to us through the scriptures rather than waiting to hear a divine voice in our heads? I think it does. See, when we know that God speaks personally and powerfully through his word, we don't have to feel that our relationship with Christ is subpar. We don't have to feel like we have some less than Christian life if we don't sense God giving us extra biblical instruction or a promise. We live in a culture where not only the people that don't know God would tell us to follow our hearts, but... It's sad. We live also in a day when many churches would tell us the same thing, but we know that Scripture tells us what? Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? When we know that God speaks through His Word, we don't have to accept. In fact, we can be appropriately skeptical of any other book any teacher, any preacher, or even a friend when they write or when they say, God told me. 
See, with this book in our hands and in our hearts, we don't have to wait for God to give us the go-ahead for a yes or a no decision. We can, we can make that decision. We can consult the Bible. We can rest in the wisdom and the insight that the Holy Spirit is developing in us, and we can feel free, a tremendous freedom to make some choices. And as we delight ourselves in the law of the Lord day and night, we can expect his word to become living and active deep in our souls. And as that word transforms us by the renewal of our minds, we can find that our thoughts and our feelings and our dreams and our desires, they, they're being shaped more and more by his word than by our flesh. And over time, we'll find that more, we're more drawn to obey his commands than, than we are to follow culture. We'll ask him for direction, and guess what? Out of his graciousness, he's going to give it to us. So that's my little sidebar this morning. Back to Vicki. My guard's up. But this encouragement from her, this, this phone call with my mother-in-law was straight from a passage of Scripture, cast your nets on the other side. There was no extra biblical message here or a prophecy. This is just encouragement of something that the Holy Spirit had laid on her heart. And so at the age of 28, and having grown up in the church, I've heard this story dozens of times. And, and growing up in a Christian home at 28, i got to tell you, I was not the most spiritually mature person. The coming weeks had my mind reeling as to what the meaning of this message from God was. And, you know, we had two different aspects to our business. And so maybe maybe I was spending too much time on this side and I should be putting all of my focus and my efforts on the other side of this business. Maybe that's what it was about. Well, as I began to study the passage, I pretty quickly came to Probably the most obvious and uh, simple explanation. This is a story of obedience. Jesus says, do this. The disciples do it. And guess what? The result is that out of their blind obedience, they're rewarded. And for many years, that was it for me. This is a story of obedience. And that's a great message. It's maybe a message that some of us need to hear this morning. Great, we can go home now. But I gotta tell you, there's so much more in here than just a message of obedience. In our remaining time this morning, I'd like to unpack some of the other things that I believe God's shown me through this passage. It's a passage of God's Word that for me has been so living and active. God's used it to shape me. He's, He's used it to grow me. He's learned, he, He's, He's used it to grow my understanding of His Word and His truth and He's, used it to grow my understanding of his purposes for my life. Each time I read it, I get something new. So if you're ready to dig in, say, let's go. All right, John 21. It's been read already for us this morning. We're going to look at the first part of this passage, but let's get some context. If you go back a couple chapters, Jesus has just been crucified. The disciples had not only followed Jesus around for the last three years or so, they've been doing life together, okay? 
They've, they've not just sort of had this front row seat. They, they've been intimately involved in the ministry. If you go all the way back to the first part of the book of John, we see Jesus, when he, he first recruits these guys, he finds them fishing. They, they were professional fishermen, and they were on the job when Jesus first called them to follow him. In fact, if you hold your finger in John 21 and flip back to the book of Matthew, we'll see Matthew's account of how this all went down in chapter 4, starting at verse 18. Matthew says this, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. That's in reference to Jesus. Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Fishing was their job. These guys left their jobs, they left the family business, they left their families to follow Jesus. See, they believed that Jesus was going to be the future king of Israel, the Messiah. And and as the Messiah, he'd be rescuing them from the rule of the Roman Empire. And now, just a few years later, Jesus is dead. And despite all the miracles, and despite all of Jesus' teaching leading up to that death, And in the previous couple of chapters leading up to where we are this morning, Jesus had already revealed himself, his resurrected self to them twice. They're just still not getting it. Just not quite there. I know I've been there. So there's some background. Look at verse 1. After this. All of that after this. Jesus revealed himself to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were gathered together. Simon Peter said to them, saying, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Stop there. We see a couple of interesting things here. Remember, these guys are pros. They've done this before. Look at that verse again. That night. They've actually done this before, but that particular night, they caught nothing. And get this. The fact that they were fishing at night is something not to overlook either. See, nighttime was the time when the professional fishermen would go out and fish because they could, in the morning, bring the catch in and sell it as fresh at the market first thing in the morning. So we see this isn't just some casual fishing trip for some buddies that are trying to get their mind off of the events of the last few days. These guys are in the mode of, what do we do next? Jesus is dead. And here they are, back doing what they know how to do to earn a living. They went out in the boat, but that night they caught nothing. You know, growing up, I can really remember the big catch that's just coming up, don't you? Don't you remember that? It's such an amazing thing. It's a miracle. But get this, I want to submit to you the first miracle that I see in this story. The catch of how many fish? Hold up your hand and show me the number of fish that they caught that night. Zero. Zero. Not even one got snagged in the edge of the net. 
Come on, these are pros. They knew how to do it. They knew when to do it. They knew where to go. They had their honey holes, right? They Show me the number again. Zero. How frustrating. But hang on, it gets worse. (laughs) Verse 4. Just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Just as in the past couple of chapters, they didn't recognize him. There are a bunch of theories and explanations as to why this is so. Um, those got left on the editing room floor this week. Uh, I didn't want to go off on a tangent on that, but I would encourage you to study that. We're not told in this particular passage why, but they didn't recognize him. But he says to them this, we know it's Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. So all night long, no fish, discouraged. You can almost hear it, right? Do you have any fish? No. No. That's just insult to injury, right? But get this. This is the part we all know. He said to them, cast your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple who Jesus loved, that's John, the writer here, therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. Look at this. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in a boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from land, but about a hundred yards off. See, this is where my early theology was lacking. Not that I've arrived by any means, But in my mind, obedience equaled reward. But see, I was missing it. Do you do you see it here? Don't miss this. It's an attitude of worship. It's an attitude of worship. This is Jesus revealing himself in all of his glory with power and authority over all things. And those who are closest to him responding. I mean, Peter couldn't get there fast enough. He expects our worship. He expects our worship. And how many times, I wonder how many times when we feel that our plans, our ways are frustrated, that in those times our kind and gentle Savior simply calling us to to a place of desperate abandonment, to the end of ourselves in an attitude of worship. He expects our worship. Children, have you caught any fish? No. I've been there. Christmas of 1999, I was there for sure. Have you been there? If you're being honest with yourself, maybe you're there this morning. And maybe you need to make an adjustment to your outlook. Maybe you need to look back at the times that God has been so faithful in your life. Maybe you need to look at the times in your life that God has shown his character to you. Maybe you need to lift your eyes up beyond your immediate circumstance and focus your adoration on Jesus Christ. It's an attitude of worship. He wants our worship. Verse 9 says this, When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. So they get to shore and Jesus, he's got this fire going for them. And he's got breakfast ready. You know, we use this phrase, breaking bread together. 
The Bible uses it um, throughout Scripture. We see the phrase used. It signifies being in fellowship with each other. It signifies relationship. It's doing the, the everyday things of life together, the small things. And I would submit to you that the here, this is further evidence that Jesus wants a deep relationship with his disciples. He wants to walk with them through even the most basic and simple things that we do in our everyday lives. He desires a relationship with you. He desires a relationship with me. Do you believe that? Are you walking with him? Okay, I I can hear the skeptic on this. Does Jesus really want a relationship with me? Yes, he does. See, for believers, it's easy for us to think of ourselves as God's servants or even his children. And those things are true. But is that all he wants? Can, Can we be a friend? In fact, a very close friend to Jesus? I believe that Jesus wants far more relationship with us than most people think. You know, the book of Revelation is almost always used as a prophetic book, but there are some amazing statements in that book that reveal God's character. They reveal his purpose for creating man. And one of those statements spoken by Jesus is found in Revelation 3, and it says this, If any hear my voice and open the door, I will come into their house and eat with them, and they will eat with me. See, Jesus is giving us a hint at what kind of special relationship he wants with those that follow him. He, he wants us to recognize his voice. He, he wants us to open the door. He wants us to invite him in. That's relationship. That's that's one-on-one, and it's an awesome thing. He wants to walk with you. Are you walking with him? You say, okay, I see that there, but what exactly does that mean? I mean, I pray. I, re- I read the Bible. Okay, great, but are you walking with him in that? You might be here this morning, and you say, well, may- I, don't know, I try. I try to read the Bible, but I just get distracted. Okay. Let me share something with you that was shared to me many years ago in a time where I was going through um, a, a dry time of personal study. It's called the three D's. By show of hands, how many people here this morning would say that you know that working out is good for you? Right? Nearly everyone. Keep your hand up. Keep your hand up. It's going to get more embarrassing. Now, anyone here this morning that works out nearly every day and absolutely loves it. Okay, take a look around. We know it's good for us. But we don't do it, see, because in the immediate... Look, the principle of the three Ds is pretty pretty basic. I know it's good for me. And so I discipline myself to do it. And after some time and after some commitment in disciplining myself to do it, I may miss a couple of days. And it's weird, but my body misses it. It, it desires it when I miss it. It, it feels neglected. But get this, my, my discipline grows to a desire. 
And over even more time, that desire grows into delight. Now I'm looking forward to it. But I'm getting great satisfaction during it. I'm reaping the benefit of the entire process. Get this, loved ones. Jesus wants to walk with you. But you're going to have to discipline yourself and peel away from some of life's distractions. Spend some time with them. Eventually, not right away, but over time, out of that discipline will grow desire. And from that will grow delight. Let me ask you this. As lovingly as I can this morning, is a relationship with the God of the universe worth the effort? As lovingly as I can, is it worth the work that you might have to put into it? He wants our worship. He, he wants to walk with you. Are you walking with him? Check out this next part. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net into shore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Can I just tell you, there's so much here. And for the longest time, I've overlooked a lot of it. We're, we're going to only unpack just a couple of things, but I want to just show you a couple of things that have been revealed to me about these couple of verses. How many of us have heard and would agree with the phrase, Jesus plus nothing equals everything? How many people would agree with that? Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Okay? That's the message of the gospel, right? But 1 John 4.10 does a much better way of explaining this. It says this, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation, that's a pretty big word, but the concept is really pretty simple. Basically, it's this. We have a debt that's brought on by our sinfulness. See, we're all sinners. Can you agree with that? Can you agree with that? Most of us can agree that we're sinners. And if you're struggling with that this morning, just check in with somebody that you live with and they can confirm it for you. We're all sinners. So we have sin and the Bible, you know, this book that we say is breathed out by God and it's 100% accurate. Well, it tells us that there's a penalty for sin. But see, propitiation means that that penalty, that debt, it was settled. It was satisfied in the person of Jesus Christ and the work that he did on the cross. And if you're a follower of Christ this morning, you can rest in that amazing truth. 1 John 4.10 is, is one of many places that show us that Jesus is the one true way and that he paid the penalty on our behalf. Do you believe that? Okay, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Let me show you something so cool. You may be way ahead of me here, but this is just too awesome to miss. So these guys are out fishing. No success. They listen to this guy a hundred yards off the shore who tells them to cast their nets on the other side. And now they have this enormous catch. 
And just to be clear, this is money in the bank. They're ready to sell these fish at the market. This is a payday. So John, the light bulb goes on, and he's like, it's the Lord. And Peter rushes to get his clothes on, and he's jumps out of the ship, or, and, and he's into the water, and he's swimming the 100 freestyle as fast as he can to get to Jesus. When they all get to Jesus, he's got this fire going, and he's got fish on the fire, and he says this awesome thing. <laughs> Do you see it right here? Bring some of the fish that you've just caught. This is so amazing. Don't miss this. Now, here, who here thinks that Jesus actually needed them to bring some of the fish? Right. And, and who actually caught those fish? Anyone? Jesus, right? But the specific vehicle that he used to do it was these guys that he loved. And here we see him saying, hey, hey, I, I know I've already got this breakfast thing covered. But hey, loved ones, why don't you bring some of the fish that you just caught? Throw, throw some of those on here with these. Do you see that here? He's done the miraculous through them, and now he wants to see them to bring their thing to the table and how he's blessed them and, and bring that to offer. Do you see it? These fish were money at the market, money in the bank, but he wants them to participate. He wants them to celebrate. He wants them to contribute, even though ultimately the fish, they were given to them by him in the first place. It's an amazing picture of how God wants us to use our resources and not just our finances, by the way, but our talents, our gifts and our abilities with him and for him. He's created them. He's given them to us, but he wants us to use them for him and for his glory. Isn't that awesome? Sometimes it's easy to get lulled into this mindset that everything that's going on here It's all just sort of for us, you know, just to consume. And while our weekly gathering is for sure a time for us to recharge and spiritually so that we can face another week, there's no question about that. But we've got to get out of this mindset that God is just all right with us sitting on the sidelines. Attending church and wondering what can church do for me. There is no question that God is going to get his thing done. But he wants us to bring our finances, our talents, our abilities, and our skills and get to work alongside of him. See, see if we miss this, if we miss this, it's us that misses out on what God has for us, not him. He wants our worship. He, he wants to walk with us, and he wants us to work for him. Quickly now as we close, one last bonus in this passage. Look at verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And as I've studied this passage, I saw another sort of interesting thing. Look at that question again. Simon, Son of John, do you love me more than these? What is Jesus saying here? Is he talking about the other guys around the fire? Is he asking Peter if he loves him more than the other guys love him? Maybe it's this. Maybe he's, maybe 
he's asking Peter if he loves him more than the other guys love him. I'm studying the text closely. I believe that, in fact, what Jesus was asking him is this. Hey, Peter, do you love me more than you love these fish? Do you love me more than your livelihood? you love me more than taking these fish to the market? I'm sure that most of us know that Peter, just a few chapters earlier, as Jesus had already prophesied, Peter had denied Jesus three times. And many times I've read this text and heard these next few verses and teaching on it, and the fact that Jesus gives Peter a public opportunity to profess his love for Jesus in front of the others. It's a story of redemption. It's a story of restored relationship. I don't want us to overlook that this morning. It's an amazing picture of God's kindness. Look at these last few verses. He says to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Isn't Jesus so kind? He's he's extending grace. He's offering restored relationship. And he's giving Peter another chance to start over. See, we serve a God of second and third and fourth chances. He wants your worship. He wants to walk with you. He wants you to devote yourself to a life of working for him. And in his graciousness, it's never too late. Maybe that time is right now. Perhaps March 19th of 2017 is the day that you put the stake in the ground and make the choice to follow him. Maybe Maybe it's the day that you start fresh with him. Jesus says these two simple words, follow me. The band is coming back out and they're going to lead us in one more song. But I want to do something a little bit different this morning. Let's do something different. As the, began, as the band begins to play, would you use the first, time of, the first part of this song as a time to reflect on your life and where you are in your commitment to following Jesus this morning. And when you feel led, would you then stand? Jesus invites you. He says, follow me. Maybe today is the first day that you truly pour out your heart to him in worship. Are you spending your life worshiping him? Maybe, maybe today is the day that you make the choice to get serious about the discipline of walking with him. He wants to walk with you. Maybe, maybe today 
is a day that marks a turning point for you. It's, it's a day where you make some choices to rearrange some things in your schedule. To put your hand to the plow and start working for him. Are you working for him? He's inviting you this morning. Follow me, he says. Follow me. Thanks for listening to the Harvest Bible Chapel Winston-Salem podcast. For more information, visit harvestws.org.